0: Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial
1: support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Statements by government that we are equal and that mistreatment of us is wrong and contrary to the law, that's a very powerful part of changing those those attitudes. I mean, ultimately, what we're looking for is the opportunity for everybody to have a full and safe life and opportunity without discrimination on a range of grounds, including LGBTQ status.
0: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simkat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Jean and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner, as if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm on themselves. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states and even some other countries recognize that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available at outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with the growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there's a movement determined to put us firmly back in our place, as they would have it. Cake Shops and Florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at any other minority group. Just imagine it. A shop owner says, My religious liberty prevents me from serving black people, or Jewish people, so go away it's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes the law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So, is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone, citing religious liberty, discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? Does one take precedence over the other when equality and religious liberty come into conflict? This is the second part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Jenny, welcome back to Outcasting. Lucas, it's a pleasure. So good to be with you. When we left off last time, we were talking about the movement to elevate religious liberty above the right to equality so that people and businesses can use their religious beliefs to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be allowed for other minorities. And you reminded us that the United States is not a theocracy; that we have a secular government that provides not only freedom of religion, but also freedom from religion, and that each of us should have the same basic rights under the civil law. So moving ahead, do you think that religious liberty can coexist peacefully with LGBTQ equality, or does one or the other have to be limited?
1: Well, yes, absolutely. Religious liberty can coexist peacefully with LGBT equality in the same way that religious liberty can and has coexisted peacefully with equality for women and for racial justice. If we think back, One of the Supreme Court cases that we cite frequently now, and in fact the Supreme Court cited in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case a couple of years ago about the Christian baker that didn't want to make a cake, a wedding cake for same-sex couple, the Supreme Court cited a case that was about sincere religious beliefs that the races should be separate and that a barbecue restaurant, a chain of barbecue restaurants owned by white people, had a religious responsibility to refuse to seat black guests. They would only serve barbecue on a takeout basis for African-American guests. That was their sincere religious belief, and the Supreme Court recognized, well, that belief is protected, but if you're operating a business, you have to follow the law. The law says we're not having racial segregation. We'll protect your right to believe as you wish, but not to act based on that belief in a way that's discriminatory. So our society has grappled with this question repeatedly before and has developed a framework that works quite well. I mean, we saw the same issue a number of years ago when there were some commercial landlords that refused to rent apartments to unmarried different sex couples. These were cases in which the landlord claimed a right to not follow the fair housing law because of a sincere religious belief that different sex couples who might have sex with each other outside marriage, they should, they should not live together. And a landlord should not be complicit in what that religious belief deemed to be a sin by renting that apartment. And the courts came to the correct and consistent conclusion that that belief on the part of the landlord is protected, but not the act of discriminating in rental housing. So it's, it's not new. However, we have seen, as the marriage equality work had more and more success, and as it looked as though we were likely to ultimately prevail, we saw not just a few, but actually hundreds of proposals in state legislatures across the country to create legal permission to act based on religion in a way that would discriminate against same-sex couples. Most of those proposals were stopped. I'm happy to say, but there was quite a fervent effort on the part of those who opposed marriage equality to create this religion-based permission to discriminate. Another way of thinking of it might be, well, if the courts allow this new legal protection for same-sex couples, this new legal recognition for same-sex couples, people operating some of these businesses wanted the freedom to not follow that new rule. And for the most part, we were able to oppose those proposals, stop them from becoming law. But it is certainly an ongoing conversation, an ongoing contest really. And there are quite a few cases in the courts now that are testing whether the balance should continue to be the same. The court decisions that have been issued going back now a number of decades, quite a few decades, whether that gives us the correct answer when it comes to the tension between religious freedom and LGBT equality, as we saw in cases about sex discrimination, race discrimination, and marital status discrimination. We think the answer should be the same. That's certainly the position we're litigating in these cases. And the Supreme Court has yet to give us a complete and final definitive answer, although there was some quite important good language in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision.
0: So now, without getting yet into recent developments, say the past 10 years, let's start by defining what the actual interests are in the situation. Let's start specifically with the right not to be discriminated against. What is the constitutional basis for that?
1: Well, the Equal Protection Clause is the most important protection. That's in the 14th Amendment. That's one of the amendments that was put in place after the Civil War. Now, there's a similar equality right in state constitutions as well. And sometimes that state constitutional right is a bit broader than the federal right. Both sources of equality protection are terribly important.
0: Can you explain how that works and why it hasn't yet made us LGBTQ people truly equal?
1: Well, the place to start is that the Supreme Court held back in the late 1800s that the Constitution only applies against the government. It doesn't apply in the private sector. So, each equality movement has had to get statutes passed, laws passed to require equal treatment in the private sector. So, that is like, for example, I was mentioning this federal law about employment that was passed in 1964. That law covers discrimination based on race, color, national origin, sex, or religion. And that applies to employers that are big enough, and it creates a framework for how we decide whether discrimination is actually happening on one of those forbidden bases. We've had to develop the legal arguments to get the courts to understand that discrimination based on a person's sexual orientation has to be understood as a form of sex discrimination, that sexual orientation discrimination is a relational idea. Let's say I'm working in a job setting, and my boss learns that I'm dating a man. That's just fine if I'm seen as a woman. But if I'm seen as a man dating another man, the boss doesn't like that. Well, the cause of the boss's unhappiness is my sex with respect to the person I'm dating. In other words, sexual orientation is a relational concept. It can't be understood without referring to sex so it's sex discrimination. The Supreme Court did a similar analysis in the the case about gender identity. That was about whether the person's sex is understood from the perspective of the boss or from the perspective of the worker and the boss not approving of the sex of the worker. The federal law promises that we're to be treated equally in the workplace without regard to those personal characteristics. So, We've had to do the work in states and at the federal level to get those statutory protections because the Constitution, which is incredibly important, doesn't reach those areas in the private sector. I will say, though, we have won important victories in court and important progress in interacting with the government Based on the Constitution, in fact, winning the freedom to marry involved litigating based on the Constitution. And when we challenge the government about the military policy, for example, or other ways that the government treats us, we refer to the Constitution and there is important protection for LGBT people in the Equal Protection Clause.
0: So what's the constitutional basis for religious liberty?
1: Well, that's the First Amendment, the First Amendment religion clauses that protect both the freedom to exercise religion and a freedom from having the government establish or prefer a particular religion over other religions or religion in general over non-religion. And we have similar protections for religion in state constitutions as well. And there are also special protections for religion in lots of laws in Title VII, the federal law about workplace discrimination, there's a special requirement that employers provide special accommodations for workers who have certain religious needs. Now, that's not an enormous burden on the employer. It's a duty to accommodate, and it only goes so far, but it's an example of special protection for religious interests that exist in some statutes as well as the constitutional protection. The constitutional protection, again, is... Just relates to how the government treats us. So sometimes there are statutory protections that protect religion that govern the private sector. Is there any
0: particular importance to religious liberty being in the First Amendment and equal protection being in the Fifth and Fourteenth?
1: No, that is something that we sometimes hear from people who believe that religious liberty should surmount all the other interests and dominate over all the other rights. But that's not actually how the Constitution works all of those rights are considered to be fundamental, to be essential and incredibly important. And it's the job of the courts sometimes, and also the rest of us, to understand how they should relate to each other. For example, if you were on trial the right to trial by jury and the other protections for how you're treated as a criminal defendant would be the most important rights to you in that context. And if you're in some other context, then the protections that apply in that context would be the most important ones. The rights of speech and to petition the government and freedom of religion, they certainly were considered very important by the founders. But so were these other rights. I mean, the right to not have the government or police invading your home without a proper warrant or proper cause, that's an incredibly important freedom. The founders certainly thought that was just as important. So it it doesn't matter what the number is. They're all protected by the Constitution, and the courts figure out how they should relate to each other when there's a perceived conflict between them.
0: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Our guest is Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. So we've been talking mainly about courts. Let's turn to legislation. There are federal, state, county, and local laws that protect LGBTQ people from discrimination. Tell us about some of them.
1: Well, I'll start by saying that they vary quite a lot. They vary in what they cover. They vary in the enforcement provisions that they have, the remedies that they provide, and also how clear and understandable they are. State laws cover quite a lot. Local laws usually have a lot less power to regulate. At this point, roughly half the states have strong civil rights protections for LGBT people, Then in some of the states that don't have a state law, there are local protections. Local governments often have more authority to control public spaces. Often they don't have the authority to regulate things like employment. So one of the challenges that we have is that there can be quite a bit of confusion if the laws vary from city to city or county to county and even from state to state. That's part of why we put quite a priority on eventually being able to pass consistent laws at the federal level so everybody has protection and everybody knows what those protections are.
0: So when we were talking several years ago with Evan Wilson about marriage equality in an earlier episode of Outcasting, and this was before the Obergefell case in 2015, which made marriage equality the law of the land. He said that people's right to be married and all that entails flickered in and out like cell phone service as they cross state lines. With the state and local laws, do we have that same situation? We're protected from discrimination in one jurisdiction, but the protection flickers out when we cross the border into another jurisdiction?
1: Yes, that's exactly what we have. And that's part of why it can be so confusing. People do sometimes say, what's the point of having local laws in particular, if the protections are limited both in scope and also in just that particular geography, which might be quite small. I do think those protections are important, even if the practical impact is somewhat limited, because they can be an important statement of welcome and a statement of community values and how people are expected to treat each other. That's part of why people sometimes work so hard to enact protections at the local level. And sometimes they do that as a statement encouraging businesses to come or insisting that it's important to pass those laws so that a business will come because it's a statement that all of the employees of that business would be welcome, all the guests would be welcome, that the local government intends to make that a welcoming environment. I think that all is quite important. At the same time, the reality is that those rights, as a practical matter, they just exist within those local jurisdictions, and often it's confusing how to use them, and sometimes they don't actually provide that much in the way of a remedy. So the state laws provide a lot more, and then ultimately the federal law is what makes a national commitment that people will be treated fairly and will have real remedies if their rights are violated.
0: So aside from the practical impact, why is that symbolism so important to LGBTQ people?
1: Well, an important part of the change that we all are working toward is a changed social understanding of whether there's something wrong with us, whether we should be welcomed and included in society, or whether we should be stigmatized and, and shunned and excluded. Among the challenges that I think we've made a lot of progress about over you know the recent decades is people coming out and letting the rest of society know who we are and dispelling a lot of the myths about who we are but the social stigma can be so damaging and it causes so much anguish within families if parents feel that they have failed because it turns out that their child is LGBTQ maybe the child is gender nonconforming or whatever it may be and parents feel that this is wrong or maybe there is condemnation within their faith community so statements by government at whatever level of government that we are equal and that mistreatment of us is wrong and contrary to the law that's a very powerful part of changing those those attitudes i mean ultimately what we're looking for is the opportunity for everybody to have a full and safe life and opportunity It's not that we want everybody to have legal claims and spend everybody spend their lives in courts litigating about things. I mean, at Lambda Legal, we litigate. It's an important part of what we do, and we take up cases. But ultimately, the society that we're trying to achieve is one where people are treated properly. So changing attitudes is key to that, and laws and policies are an important reflection of the values that are to govern in a particular space, Whether it's a public law or ordinance or whether it's the policy of a private employer, they're all important in giving the guidance about how we are to treat each other and the respect that is deserved by each person without discrimination on a range of grounds, including LGBTQ status.
0: So there is a law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RFRA. What was going on in the United States that spurred its enactment? Had religious freedom been restrained and why did it need to be restored?
1: Religious Freedom Restoration Act, not so affectionately sometimes called RIFRA. What happened was that there was a case that was decided by the Supreme Court in 1990. The name of the case was Employment Division Against Smith. And it was a case about a Native American man who had been using peyote and he was fired from his job. There was a lawsuit about whether he was entitled to unemployment benefits. And ultimately, it made its way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court changed the legal test. Now, we had had a legal test that gave special protection to religious rights. It used a test where it looked about whether a person's religious freedom was being burdened by a law. If it was being substantially burdened, then the government had to have a compelling interest to enforce the law, and the law couldn't be too broad. It was a technical legal test. And in the Smith decision, the court really changed the analysis. And it's interesting. This was a decision written by Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, a very conservative jurist. But his view here was that if religion was not being targeted, and it was just a a neutral, religiously neutral law that applied to everybody the same way, no unequal treatment of people based on religion, that everybody has to follow the law. So that really would make it much easier for government to function. So Justice Scalia was quite passionate about religious rights, but he also felt that government should have the right to operate, to pass laws, no religious targeting, but in essence, no special treatment. If there's a law that applies to everybody, everybody should follow it. Many people in society and in Congress thought that that decision was incorrect and they passed this Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So what they were restoring was the idea of special rights for religion and a special legal test that required the government to have extra strong reasons to enforce a law if doing so would burden somebody's religion.
0: Now that may sound very good but is it code language? Does the rifra hide something dangerous while looking like something good? Or has that evolved over time?
1: Well, when the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was being considered in Congress, it had broad support across the political spectrum of religious conservatives on the one hand, the ACLU on the other hand, quite a few different groups with different views about religion, all thought it was appropriate to reinstate this heightened protection for religion. But your question is quite insightful. The fact is that people had different ideas about how this legal test should work. And actually, a profound change was brought about by the Supreme Court just a couple of years ago in a decision that folks may remember hearing about called Hobby Lobby. This was a case in which the Supreme Court really changed the elements of the test. It was a case about whether a part of the Affordable Care Act that requires employers to include birth control insurance coverage in the employee's health insurance coverage, if an employer had a religious objection to including that birth control coverage, could they object? So there's a federal law, the Affordable Care Act, requiring employers to provide this insurance, some employers objected, and the Supreme Court said, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the employer was burdened, the government maybe has a good reason for requiring that insurance, but they could provide the insurance another way, and so the employer doesn't have to provide it. And on the way to getting to that conclusion, the different elements of the test were really reinterpreted in some ways that Create some quite serious potential implications moving forward, so I would say the current test has become grossly distorted from what it, the way it started out, and that really does pose a problem for us moving forward and you
0: noted that this is a federal law. Are there any state versions?
1: Well, there are some state versions. Actually, what happened was the Supreme Court decided in 1997 that the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act could not be applied against the states for various reasons about the way we do constitutional analysis. And after that decision, a number of states did enact their own versions of RFRA. The names vary a little bit, the Religious Freedom Protection Act, Religious Liberty Protection Act, you know, but along the same lines. And some of those state laws actually go farther than what the federal law does. Sometimes they explicitly said that those rights can be invoked by private parties in their own private disputes. doesn't have to involve government. That's one example. So there is some variety. And then some states considered enacting laws of that sort and decided against it. There's still the possibility in some states, and I'll use California as an example because I'm sitting here in beautiful Los Angeles right now. The California legislature did not pass a law of that sort, but the California Supreme Court has not yet answered the question that the Supreme Court answered in the Smith case by Justice Alito. In other words, the California Constitution might well require the kind of strict scrutiny analysis, that's what we call this complicated test. The California Constitution might require that as a matter of state constitutional law. We don't know. So the bottom line is sometimes we have statutory protections at the federal level. Sometimes they're at the state level. Sometimes we have constitutional protections at the federal level. Sometimes they're at the state level. They all can vary and they all get invoked in some of these disputes by people who, for religious reasons want to be able to continue to discriminate against LGBT people, even when we've succeeded in getting protections in state law or in federal law.
0: We've run out of time, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks for joining us, Jenny.
1: Thanks so much, Lucas. It's been fun.
0: That's it for this second part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any of the series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants, Sarah, Chris, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Lucas. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, Listen links for all Outcasting content and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org under outcasting, LGBTQ resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Outcasting.
1: If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.